I'm Esther Amar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. Coming up, it's our Reimagining Africa series. We celebrate Africa Day, the founding of the Organization of African Unity, now known as African Union, in May 1963. Here on The Spin, we're hearing from African women leading, thriving, and reimagining sectors right here in Ghana, across Africa, and in the diaspora. This week, it's all about education. Teachers, learners, parents, schools, school principals, education in Ghana and across Africa is all of this and so much more. Who teaches the teachers? Whose vision of education leads in our classrooms? How does policy help or hinder? What does visionary leadership in education feel and look like? We're talking high schools. What role has colonialism's legacy played in shaping our modern-day education here in Ghana and across Africa? Education is revered across Africa. From elementary school, junior school, high school and university, the path of learning is a crucial and challenged one. On today's show, we're exploring visionary learning with a woman who is reimagining education here in Ghana and across Africa. Our guest this week is Dr. Mary Eshun. All of that coming up on The Spins Reimagining Africa. We all know that education, more than anything else, improves our chances. Tell me, how many countries do you think are in Africa? And how many cultures spread across the diaspora? To learn about African populations, we first have to build our knowledge foundation. There are so many countries on the African continent and many more cultures that these countries represent. How much do you know about the African nations and the diversity found in their great civilization? We begin our We're joined by a Ghanaian woman, a visionary in this world of education, creating fresh paths for senior high school, or SHS, as it's called here in Ghana. Dr. Mary Eshun is the principal for Ghana International School, known as GIS, based in Ghana's capital city, Accra. Dr. Eshun has been a principal for five years here in Ghana. She has taught and headed schools in southwestern Ontario, Canada for over 25 years. Dr. Eshun is a director on the board of the Association of International Schools in Africa, known as ASA. ASA is the leading association for school teachers and educators in Africa. And get this, she's a creative, a prolific writer. Dr. Eshun has penned 30. Teen novels, yes, I said it 13, to musicals, poetry, and even song lyrics. She's a mama, a mother of three grown up sons, and I think we can all agree, a bona fide badass. <laughs> Welcome to Reimagining Africa, Dr. Mary Eshun. Thank you. Thank you, Esther. <laughs> so, GIS, Ghana International mm-hmm. School, it's a school that turns out some of Ghana's best and brightest. Now, it's also part of a sector plagued with challenges. Um, Going to school may be a must, but getting educated does not necessarily happen just because someone went to school, certainly not in Ghana, given the challenges that we face. Mm -hmm. So let's start off by talking about the challenges in Ghana's education senior high school system, also across Africa and the impact of those challenges. So we want to break this 
all the way down. There are different people and elements involved in teaching, teachers, learners, parents, principals, infrastructure. When education is discussed, senior high school education, SHS education, there is a lot around the language of blame. Mm. The government has failed to do this, this person has failed to do that. Mm. I wonder how unhelpful the language of blame is and how does it translate to the challenges that exist mm -hmm. for teachers in the, in the classroom? Or is, is that even a fair question? Yeah, it is a fair question. It's highly, highly responsible for what ends up happening in the classroom because if nobody is really responsible, <laughs> nobody will do anything. Right. The accountability is zero. We've got to get to that point where the issue of education in this country is just so urgent that you don't blame anybody anymore. It's all our faults. Parents are not as, I shouldn't say they're not as interested, but they're not putting in the efforts of being with their children to help them through schoolwork. A lot of parents just hire extra tutors, you know, so after school, parent doesn't get back home till after six, sometimes even 9 p.m. So there's somebody at home with them from about four o'clock helping them with their work. So the parent isn't there. And so the child is not connecting that visual that the parent cares. How many parents go and pay tuition fees at a school with the child in hand and say, this is your school fees, you know, know that I'm paying it for you. The child knows the parent pays the school fees, but the connecting visual is missing. They're not getting that from the parent. Parents who are involved in the school, as in maybe participating in PTA gatherings and so on. They may be involved in activities, chatting about what the kids are doing in class. But how many of them even know enough to be able to hold a proper conversation beyond how is my child doing in math? How's my child doing in English? And many parents do can be embarrassed that because they don't know much, they won't even show up. Right. And then that's a crucial link that is broken. You know, you need to have child, parent, teacher sitting there and talking together about the work and how the child, you know, will be assisted. When you think about government, government has got all sorts of priorities, no doubt. But when are we going to actually sit down and say, OK, you know what, with all the things we have to do, with roads that need to be built, factories that need to be built, youth employment programs. You know, we've got a lot and almost everything seems like a priority. Right. Yeah, in Ghana, I can't imagine what isn't a priority. So it becomes really difficult then for the government to justify one of them. But I think that we have to get to that point where we're so fearless, bold and aggressive enough to say, you know what, everything's important, but you know, all those important things aren't going to get done if we don't get this one thing right. And so we say, okay, what needs to be fixed about the educational system, you know, and do it. So blame game has to stop. Everyone has to admit we're part of it. I myself went to school in Ghana. I was in Achimota school, which is an SHS school. At the time that I went, though, we didn't have the SHS system. Right. And we were still doing the British system. We had O-levels and A-levels. So the educational system has changed quite a bit. But sadly, what hasn't changed for me is the lack of respect for teachers, number one. And that is an internal and external value that I see missing. Basically, teachers themselves don't respect what they do. And I think that that has translated into a public that doesn't trust as much in the work of teachers and what they do. As well, another problem that's plaguing teachers is the training just seems to have changed over time. Right. I think each government comes in and has a brand new idea, or so they think. They put it into action 
And it seems on the outside that not much thought has gone into it because the first couple of years just feels like a disaster each time. And so teachers are discombobulated. They don't know what to do anymore. They're not respected in the classroom or out of the classroom. And there's a huge, huge burden on them. As well, the people who go into teaching, and this is always a beef of mine, we always used to wonder when we were in high school why some people were teachers because we thought, a teacher is supposed to be someone who actually loves to teach. Right. And yet we had teachers who looked like they absolutely hated being there. That has plagued the teaching profession, I would say, at least as long as I've known it as a student, as well as now an educator myself. When I look at people walking in the street, I love people watching. And so wherever there are tones of people, be it just on the street, at the mall, wherever, I just sit down and watch them, mm-hmm. you know, and people I interact with. And almost always I ask myself, who taught you? You know, who taught you? Because you are likely to tell me you've finished SHS, but you can't speak a sentence correctly. You know, your grammar's all wrong. If I were to ask you to write something, your full stops, your commas are all over the place. There's no coherency. So who taught you? And whoever taught you must be put in jail. Because <laughs> it's a crime to churn out people. Tell them that you're educated. You know, here's your diploma. Now go out into the big, big world and make something of yourself because we've taught you. And this person can't even cope. And this is not just a problem at the SHS level. It's at the university level. I receive applications from university graduates, in quotes. And I'm thinking to myself, who taught you? Mm. Who passed you? So it's quite something that's happening and not just in Ghana in in the rest of Africa as well where we have got to push something we've just got to get really mad about something mad enough to do something that may be deemed crazy but might actually do some some good when we look at funding from governments this is something that we complain about and rightly so because the amount that the government spends on on education is nowhere near what it needs to be spending i don't know if any government can come anywhere close to it probably the nordic countries are the ones that are being lauded right now as putting a lot of money in into education and you see the results but Western countries like the UK, the US, Canada, mega tug of war between teachers and government with teachers and and schools and institutions saying we don't have enough money. You're not giving us enough to work with what we are supposed to be doing. And governments are like, just deal with it. It's a pity, really, because when you enter classrooms and you enter the learning spaces, you see what the teachers are talking about. And so it's a bit of a dual-edged sword where the teachers have got to get more creative as well, but government also has to recognize that you haven't even reached the minimum that you should be working with. The third prong has to do with curriculum. How do we know that the curriculum that we're teaching is going to position our children to be effective? And I was pleasantly surprised maybe about 10 years ago when I first took a serious look at the GES curriculum for our schools and was pleasantly surprised that it was really good. And this brings us back to the fact that we can write a whole lot of stuff down. And in Ghana, we're really good at that. We produce reams and reams of policy documents. And right. we're good at that. When it comes to the classroom, though, we don't know how to turn that into engaging classrooms. So you will see something on sexual health that is asking teachers to talk to students about sexual health and changes in your body and so on. And then you visit a school in the eastern region where the teacher's trying to teach that topic 
And to demonstrate, he calls a young girl up to the front who's very well developed. Uh, yeah, this is a class. Serious? I am serious. And I was there and I was horrified. So this is a class. What of do you mean? And uses her body? Uses her body. Of... He is holding a cane and he's pointing to her breasts and saying, oh my God. these are breasts. These are the, da, da, da. this is how a girl looks when she's developed. And the girl looked like she wanted the ground to open up and just swallow her. The other girls just covered their faces. Like It looked like they were afraid they were going to be called. And the boys were just roaring with laughter. Wow. And I remember standing there and thinking, no, 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 no. You know, so the, the actual stuff that's on the paper is excellent. Right. Right. But how should a teacher teach it? Right. You know, and I look at our culture. We're pretty open about our bodies you know you just need to walk by the street and see people exposing parts of their bodies you know so we're not shy of our bodies and i think sometimes the adults bring that into the classroom they think hey it's not a big deal you have a bust we all know you have a bust what's wrong with letting you stand up and let's show everybody you have a bust afterwards i told the headmaster of the school that this was inappropriate and we called the teacher and he just looked like i was talking like i was from another planet he was like what's the big deal And I said, did you see how shy she was? She really looked embarrassed about it. And Um, you know, and even if she wasn't shy, mm -hmm. why is her body the the means by which Mm -hmm. you teach an entire classroom of people? And did you ask her permission? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it goes into all kinds of issues about the ways in which girls' bodies just yeah. become appropriated definitely, in, by, by men to do whatever yeah. in the guise of education. Yeah. And it, it was interesting. I was standing there waiting to see if he would call a boy up right. and also point to his body parts. Right. But he didn't. And that's the thing. He didn't. And I thought, no, why didn't you do that? Right. You know, so there's a, a huge gap there. And you wonder where it's happening. Is it in the training colleges? Is it in-service training for when they are in schools and actually teaching? So you see that on one hand. And in the same town that I visited, I saw a teacher who was counting with pebbles that she and her students had gone out to go and pick by a stream that's just behind the school. And when I asked her why, she said because they told us they were ordering some counters from China, but they haven't arrived. And I said, and so you decided you were going to make your own counter. She said, yes, madam, because we've got to teach them how to count and how to add. And so I need something. So she went out with the kids, made an excursion of it. Kids got excited. Who can pick 10 pebbles or 10 stones out of this? And kids are, are pointing to each of their pebbles and saying what colors they are. And I thought, there's a teacher. There's a teacher, you know. Creativity, environmental, use of tools. And she's not waiting. She's not waiting and lazily sitting there on her phone, chatting on Instagram or Twitter or whatever. She's teaching and she's making sure that these kids are engaged. And we're so fortunate in this country to have excellent weather. Why not get the kids up and moving around instead of sitting behind their desks? Right. I want to take a step back. You had mentioned sexual health and the example of a teacher bringing mm-hmm. up a girl and using her body to demonstrate and not doing the same thing with a boy, which mm-hmm. somehow what suggests that only girls have bodies. Mm. But it brings up the question around what I call sexual security in schools mm. and that one of the challenges that I definitely have seen and you know, I work with an organization called the Coalition Against Sexual Abuse and our focus is specifically sexual abuse in schools, and that the poverty of training translates 
into, it seems, having predatory teachers in classrooms mm, mm-hmm. who are able to get away with the kind of sexual abuse and sexual mm-hmm. harassment that actually impacts education and the quality of education for schools. Mm-hmm. Talk about what's happening there. It's been happening for a long time. I don't know whether it's that much more now, but I think with, with the media and just people being a bit more emboldened, we're hearing more about it. But when I was in school, it was just rampant, you know, as well. I don't know that we think it causes enough damage. That's why we are not serious enough about it. Those who have gone through it choose to remain silent. And it's actually a testament to the tenacity to be able to carry on and just do well. So the impression is created that, well, it wasn't that bad. Right. So know? when you say rampant, what do you mean? Do you mean everybody knows or that yeah. it's an expectation that it's just going to happen? No, I wouldn't say that it's an expectation. But then when it does happen and you say something, everyone looks at you like, yeah, so it happens. You know, why are you making such a big deal about it? But you don't go into it expecting. Although, you know, by the time you're in from four, from five, when adolescence has taken over. Right. 13, and, and 14. That, yes, 13, 14. You do feel the pressure even more. And the way some of the teachers would look at you, you knew what they were thinking. Many girls are uncomfortable. There seems to be this idea that the schools can become this place where teachers are allowed to get away with Mm -hmm. sexually harassing, sexually abusing, sexually violating, raping girls. Mm -hmm. And there is so little consequence that all parties know Mm -hmm. that somehow Mm -hmm. you have to navigate this path for yourself. The girls certainly know. And I mean, we, we dealt with a school where it was the head teacher who was sexually harassing, sexually abusing, and raping girls. And then we found he had a history that went back, now that he's a head teacher, but he had that reputation and there were allegations when he was still a teacher Mm. that did not stop him getting promoted. And of course, promotion gives him more power. And And I wonder about what are we losing as a nation Mm. when girls are vulnerable to sexual assault like that? And... Mm teachers are able to abuse their power that way? Mm -hmm. Like, what do we lose in terms of education? And what do we lose Mm. in terms of the potential of those young women? The self-esteem factor for the young women. So women's self-esteem, women's sense of self-worth, even when it comes to marriage and choosing, you know, who who they are married to and subsequent married life and what they accept within a relationship also happens. And then the children then suffer. So it's this cycle that just never, ever stops because the children grow up seeing maybe mom being abused by dad because it's been happening to mom all her life. So it's it's no different. You also have on, on the other side, boys. I mean, I, I've always wondered whenever we, we talk about empowering girls, we seem to leave the boys out, but we've got to prepare boys for that empowered girl, you know, because that empowered girl will take nothing from boys and so even in this conversation some boys may be abused as well not as many as girls are but the boys grow up watching this and knowing it happens and in later years when I when I've spoken to some of my classmates they were disgusted by the men the teachers who were doing this but they also felt powerless to do anything so the boys also saw a certain power structure there that so long as you are a person with power, you can get away with anything. Mm. And they grow up to be those kind of monsters too. 
So all around, we're affecting the psyche of both young men and young women at that very formative stage. And then within the classroom, of course, what kind of learning is happening when I'm sitting in a classroom, listening to someone teaching me history who just molested me? How am I even going to focus? And so when a lot of girls aren't doing well, that's part of the reason they're not even present. The bodies are present, but the mind is elsewhere. The mind is suffering. And they move from these situations, they fail the exams, they'll go back home, they're yelled at by their parents. I've even heard of some parents who yell at the girls and say, so what this happened to you? You know, get over it. You're not the only one, you know, so the young women feel they're not supported by anyone. And then they have to go and take vacation classes to try to catch up. And lo and behold, there's predator number two, three, four, all of them there because that is a breeding ground for them because here are these girls who desperately need to pass. And that is just good news to a predator. What has been instructive for me is the fact that we have not connected sexual security with educational policy. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in a mm-hmm. moment, we're sitting here in Accra, Ghana's capital, in this particular government SHS, senior high school, is a major priority. Education is is flagship policy for them. Mm -hmm. It's landmark. And it's discussed in a way that consistently separates sexual security. And I feel there has been such a normalization of sexual abuse that it literally is not even for discussion. Yeah, it does not even come up. Again, it comes back to that whole priority scale that they're thinking maybe we don't have enough schools, we need to build more schools, train more teachers, get more textbooks, put computers in class. All of those other things seem more important than this. And sadly, there may be some women in power as well or in positions of power that could effect a certain change or speak up. And they may have gone through this. And because of where they are right now, they think, I'm okay, I handled it. You know, you to deal with it. So it doesn't come up, which is really scary. But it needs to be part of a comprehensive policy to ensure that learning takes place. And I think maybe that's where the language, and you, you alluded to this earlier on, that the language that we use, because language can really refocus us so that instead of education, 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 can we talk learning? When I came to GIS, we had the sick bay. We have two sick bays, and these are essentially little clinics situated in the school so if children are ill or staff or whatever I changed the name to the wellness center Mm. from the sick bay and along with it becoming the wellness center it became a place that now designed programs to make us well as opposed to being there so that when you're sick you go there so we've had weight loss programs we've had diabetes education just this past weekend we did a power walk all sorts of things that originate through the wellness department now, which the sick bay wouldn't have thought of doing, or because that's not what they were about. So a certain refocusing on what the issue is. It, It is education at heart, but it is learning. How do we get people to learn? What are the factors that go into learning? And security, number one, is one of them. So under security, you'll have sexual security, you'll have physical security, you'll have all sorts of mental security as well. We have children who transition from different countries into into our school. What is there for that kind of a transitional security, if you may call it that, you know, that maybe in my former school, this is how we used to do it. Now I'm in the school where this isn't tolerated. How do I cope with it? Mm-hmm. All of that 
And that needs to change. So a certain language needs to be refashioned, redeveloped. And with that, then comes a new understanding of what needs to go into that space. Because then we would be able to input sexual security there as well. In the sciences and math, when you get to the SHS level, how many women are there teaching? Right. You know, and apart from the visuals of seeing a woman teaching chemistry or a woman teaching a higher level math of some sort, apart from another young woman seeing it and saying, wow, she's doing this and she does it so well, so I could do it. The boys see it too and know that girls and women can do this as well. But also when that girl has got an issue, she has someone to go to. One of the hallmarks of an effective school is that every child, if questioned, could point to at least one adult within the school that they could go and talk to if there was something wrong. Just one. So can you imagine in some of our schools that have got over 100 teachers, if you were to pick a child and just ask them off the cuff and they said, no, there's no one, then that school is failing. And so all of those imbalances there in gender, you know, need to be looked at, need to be addressed. The attitudes of teachers at the different levels and, and how they project those attitudes towards children to make them comfortable. And the number one question on one of the surveys that we have for our students every semester, we have a teacher survey. The students survey the teachers and it's all anonymous. And one of the questions is, does your teacher make you feel safe in the classroom? And then we ask the kids yes or no, and then tell us why or why not. And there's a text box there for them to, to tell us. And that safety sometimes comes across in ways that you might not be surprised at. Let's say the teacher's always yelling at me, teacher's always calling me up to ask me, questions and one child might like that another child feels hugely uncomfortable by that but this is where the emotional intelligence of the teacher needs to come into play and you need to realize okay this child is beginning to look uncomfortable therefore pull back a little bit because for all you know there was a parent-teacher conference and the parents said you know my child says you never ask her questions in class so teacher's like okay cool you're gonna answer all the questions in class now And just goes overboard with it. So a lack of emotional intelligence and many of our teachers there is responsible for the feeling of a lack of safety in the classroom. So it's a good conversation that needs to be had. And I love the way you're combining engaging the students in commenting on the quality of what's happening in the school and the classroom. Mm -hmm. That question, does your teacher make you feel safe, Mm. is a massive one. I'm trying to remember if anybody's ever asked me that question when (laughs) I was in school or expected me to even have an opinion about it and that it would be listened to. But also that it allows the opportunity for issues of potential sexual harassment or sexual Mm -hmm. abuse to come up early. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And because it's anonymous and it's a place of safety, that it does that. It creates a place of safety. And so I want to ask you about, you talked about, instead of saying education, why don't we talk about learning? So then I wonder about then, what do we have to unlearn Mm. when it comes to senior high school education, I mean education in in Ghana. And I think about it in terms of the legacy of colonialism Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the lingering impact of that, how it shapes what we learn as in what the teachers learn, Mm -hmm. what principals learn, what students learn, what families learn about teachers and teaching. Mm -hmm. What do we have to unlearn and what does that unlearning look like for you? It's going to be a long process. <laughs> Not in our lifetimes. I can bet you that because, boy, I think probably the first thing is just the philosophy of learning. We have to learn and unlearn. I think that learning was probably considered to be the domain of a few. 
those who are academically strong or gifted. And I think all of us have to unlearn that, if I can put it quote unquote fact, it's not a fact. Everybody can learn. Mm -hmm. We all just learn differently at different paces with different stimuli. So everybody can learn. And the fact that someone's really good at math and sciences doesn't make them cleverer than the person who's really good in history and geography. So we have to unlearn that concept that the maths and sciences indicate how clever you are. Mm. It indicates how clever you are at maths and science. At maths and sciences. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Another one I think we need to unlearn is the concept that learning is hard. If it's not hard, then you're not learning. You basically have to torture yourself, walk over hot coals, pierce yourself all over and bleed to death. And then, whoa, then this one was really worth it. You know, gosh, why can't learning be fun? So unlearning the fact that it hurts to learn. So mm. as for Dr. Mary Shun, she's telling Chele, no wahala. You're listening to Reimagining Africa on The Spin. It's our special series for Africa Day, the annual May celebration of the birth on May 25th, 1963, of what was then the Organization of African Unity and became the African Union. And now it's known as Africa Day. Education in Africa, visionary, valuable, visual, viable, changing the model, challenging the status quo, choosing a fresh path, a talk-walking principle, leading an educational institution in West Africa, Ghana, our capital city, Accra, offering a model for a nation and a continent. We are on air in London on ABN Radio UK, across the United States, in Iowa, Ohio, Texas, Arizona, North Carolina, Massachusetts, South Carolina, New Jersey, and Mississippi. We are online on SoundCloud and iTunes. Reimagining Africa. women on the mic, moving the needle, doing the work, taking the lead.
time for part two of our discussion on education in this Reimagining Africa series. So let's talk change. What does visionary leadership in education look like? What kinds of changes do schools need to prepare students for tertiary education and actually the world? Because not everybody will do tertiary education. So let's talk being a game changer in the world of high school education, early learning education in Ghana and across Africa. So, Mary, you're much more than a principal. You're really becoming a guiding light in how Ghana is transforming SHS. You're a reformer. But talk about the kind of reform you're making and what it is you're trying to achieve with the ways in which you're moving Ghana International School and broader across the continent. The key thing is that focus on the teacher. The teacher is the single most important component in everything that we've talked about if learning is to happen. The concept of the teacher, how the teacher becomes a teacher and how they remain a teacher. And so my focus at GIS has been on focusing on the teacher. Who do I hire? How do I make sure that they keep doing what they're supposed to be doing very well? And for this, I've developed a model. It's called the Reduction of Probable Failure model. And this is uh, nicked from, from the world of maintenance engineering. Oh, wow. uh, and in, in maintenance, and I am no engineer. So engineers out there, forgive me if I just totally butcher this. Sort of listening to Habi talk about the work that he does. And, and he, he works in mining and asset management. And he's always talking about how to make sure that the equipment on site continues working for the length of its life cycle and doesn't break down. When equipment breaks down, they lose money. They want to make money, therefore they have to make sure the equipment doesn't break down. So listening to that, I think to myself, how does that translate into education? Who are my most important assets in education? Well, they're the the teachers. And I want to make sure that for a 25-year life cycle, let's say, of teaching, that that teacher does not break down. How do I ensure that? So borrowing from that field of maintenance engineering, the very first thing is to design that teacher well. All right. You design equipment well. I don't want to poo-poo any cars here, but if I put a Mercedes and a Kia next to each other and said, you know, you get to pick one, which one are you going to pick? Esther? Well, I don't know anything about cars, but I mean, everybody knows the difference between a Mercedes and a Kia. Let's just tell the truth. Yeah, yeah. I know which one most people will pick and why, because they they have heard about German engineering and it lasts long. It may cost you a a packet to be able to to maintain that vehicle, but you want that really well-designed vehicle. And so we start off with the design of that asset. And this is where, as the principal of GIS, I have no control over because by the time the teachers get to me, they have purportedly been designed. And I'm saying this because the design happens in the training colleges. That's where you take somebody who says they want to be a teacher and you try to design them to become a teacher. And so I wonder what goes on in our training colleges, the kind of mindset that we try to get. But the the training colleges would also argue where they get their people from to actually sign up. I was sharing some time ago with a friend about the the fact that those who go into teaching don't always want to be teachers. It's always just a stopgap. And I was one of those people. I didn't start out by wanting to be a teacher. I had been told over and over again that I would be a good teacher, but I never thought it was for me because it didn't seem like it had the status and definitely not paid well. So why would I want to do that? So I went along the journey to be a research scientist, got my PhD in the sciences, and then came back, you know, into teaching. So I know a lot of people 
don't start off by wanting to be teachers. And to a certain extent, that's okay. But how do we attract the very best to come so that we can design them? Because the fact that somebody is awesome at math does not mean they can teach math. Hmm. And this is something we have to unlearn as well, to go back to your previous question. So you've got that design phase. You're in the training college. Presumably, we've picked the very best. And this is what the Nordic countries do very well. The very best go into teaching. So the training colleges have an uphill task of taking somebody who's academically not strong themselves, who may not have even wanted to do it, and turn that into somebody who can go into the classroom, deliver academic subjects, and deliver it in such a way that somebody is actually excited enough to want to study it. Therein lies the problem with the, with the training colleges. And then how they even design their programs. So by the time somebody is done in the training college and they come out to a school like mine, I should have the assurance that they have been designed well. When you get a brand new car, it comes with all sorts of guarantees, does it not? Right. You get a warranty, right? And it says you've got two years on parts, one year on labor, yada, yada, yada. I have never once heard of a training college that sends out its teachers with a warranty saying that we have trained this person so well, you should get at least five years good mm. teaching out of this person. So they come to me. They've been designed well or not well, and now I have to maintain them. When you get your car and it's got all the warranties and stuff, you're still going to be, right. you know, looking at the warranty you have. Right. I think I'm every... a little troubled by the comparison of humans <laughs> to engines, but I, I get it. I get the analogy. And, and that has come up every time that I've talked about <laughs> it because here I am comparing an animate human right. to an inanimate, all right? But it ends up working well. Stick with me. <laughs> Stick with either the analogy. <laughs> so we get there and your car needs to have an oil change every thousand kilometers or whatever. This is just off the top of my head. I don't know cars either. But I do know right. that it has to have an oil change every so often. It has to have the wheels aligned every so often. It has to have this every so often. All of that is listed for you by the manufacturer or recommended to you by the manufacturer. You have a place that you go to that says... I will take your car every so often and do the following things to it so that by the time it comes back to you, it's almost as good as new so that it can go for the length of time that we have promised it will on the warranty. Right. Okay. Come back to teachers. Teachers come to us from the training colleges. They come to teach. What maintenance are we doing with them? And this is something that we are stressing so much at GIS. Teachers need to be maintained regularly. And that maintenance takes the form of professional development. Every year, they must do this. Right. Every three months, they must do that. Right. You know, and all of that needs to be documented so that then, just like your car, you've got a booklet there that tells you the maintenance that has happened with this vehicle. In training college, you should send teachers out to go and go and practice teach. And that practice teaching, most teachers I have surveyed say that that was the single most important aspect of their learning. Wow single most important aspect of their learning because the theory is just theory right. until you're in a class of 30 kids right. and you can't get a word in edgewise. So send them out, get some feedback from their supervisors. Were they able to handle a class? Were they able to teach the subject? How many kids understood it? Whatever, whatever. Comes back to the design phase. And the training college should be getting all that data and using it to tweak the program as well. One of the problems I've seen with many of our training colleges here is that those who are teaching teachers how to teach have actually never taught in schools. All they're doing 
is teaching them the theory. So we teach all of these theoretical principles, right? Because these professors have all got PhDs, right? right? So they've studied some obscure thing and gotten their, their PhD in it and they're teaching. But they can't tell you how to handle your class. And it's so interesting you say that because as, as a journalist, somebody who loves journalism and media and has done so for 16, 17 years, the thing that I know for sure that has strengthened me as a journalist has been the ongoing learning that yes. I have gone through throughout Constantly. my entire time Constantly. doing media on mm-hmm. three continents and the ongoing learning yeah. and the expectation that I should continue yes. to yes. learn. And the it changes the way. It yeah. changes the way you, I do Very the, the so. work. And, I, and it's interesting because I teach media communications in a university and have found that the same challenge applies. Mm -hmm. That sometimes people who are journalists go into teach and they don't know how to teach Mm -hmm. their market. But also those who've only done the theory of media communications mm-hmm. go in and teach they, and they don't know how to explain mm. the difference between what happens in the textbook and what happens to the newsroom Definitely. which are clearly and must obviously Definitely. be two different things. There has to be a push in the training colleges to get teachers who have taught for several years have massive experience right. to possibly go on to do their PhDs give some grants for that and let them research certain areas and at GIS the last couple of years we've had an action research fund. We give it to teachers to research a particular thing right. and then they present it at conferences. And so this will bring the real world learning right. you know, to our teachers because after they graduate, they're going into classrooms. So they right. need to know what that classroom looks like. And just like your example of your learning and teaching journalism, you expose yourself to different contexts so Absolutely. that you would understand. Absolutely. Even when it comes to the practicum training, you need to put them in various schools. Right. You know, go into a rural area, see how it's like to teach there. Right. Go into a city school, right. see how an inner city school, see how it is to teach there. Go into an international school, see how it's like to teach there. Bring all of those together. And one would think that many teachers would choose to therefore teach in a better endowed school. Right. But I have met so many teachers who find that their calling is to teach in a place where the kids don't have much. You know, but right. that exposure is so critical. And when that exposure happens and feedback is honestly given, then that training program can then be tweaked back and forth until you've got that product that you are looking for. Right. So once that product is ready, then you send them off to the schools. And then once they get there, the school must have a dedicated program for maintaining them throughout the process. Right. right? Requiring a certain number of hours of professional development, some that is self-directed by the teacher, others that are institutionally directed as well, and all of it documented to give that teacher that sense of self-worth. I'm a professional. And as I keep doing this, I become even more professional. That's my model that needs to happen. And what we are working on at GIS is looking at all of this, looking at teachers in those early stages. The first five years of any teacher's career are the most critical ones. It's at that point that they decide, okay, am I going to quit or not? So if you can manage them, support them, handle them well in those first five years, they're likely to keep going. And so we make sure that there's attention paid to those in early careers. We give them mentors to support them in the journey. Small group gatherings where we ask them, how are things going? Give us feedback, what's going on? Sometimes there there are misconceptions that they have and we try to correct those. All sorts of nurturing that happens in those first five years. And then after those first five years, the teachers are looking for something different, asking themselves, what kind of a teacher am I? 
So at GIS, we've got three tracks. We recognize that some people may be teacher researchers. Then we've got teacher administrators. Unfortunately, in Ghana, everyone wants to become a head teacher. It's the highest level they can reach, you know, within a school system, within the education service. Of course, there are different levels there, but they're all administrative. But not all of us are administrative. And how to get people to understand what an administrator does. So we've created a new position at GIS. It's called the Assistant Vice Principal. And so this is for a teacher who has had some experience and they want to explore that administrative track. And so they work alongside the vice principal on discipline issues, parent engagement, learning, all of that stuff. And then we've got the master teacher. And the master teacher is that person who says, I would absolutely die if I couldn't stand in front of kids every day right. and keep teaching. And this is what I want to be doing until I'm done. I don't want to be a researcher. I don't want to become a head teacher. I want to be with kids and I want to keep doing it well. That's the teacher that I send a brand new teacher to. That's the teacher I send somebody in their practicum that the training college wants to have experience, I send them to a master teacher's classroom to watch how they do their stuff. So in that way, you're giving people a certain room within the profession to figure out who am I within this large teaching spectrum and where can my gifts and abilities best be used. Mm. And once they then accept that this is where I'm meant to be, then we start looking for even more opportunity for them to shine either on the local stage, the national stage, maybe even international stage. But they have to have decided that this is the area that I want to get into. And I think as a model, if we translate this into our larger national conversation, it's something that can keep happening. So give me an example of how you impact mindsets in your school when you're thinking about leadership and education and making change? Mm -hmm. The whole school has a keyword every year that we use. We, we let it permeate everything that we do. Teachers are encouraged to use it in their lesson planning. We talk about it at assembly. Students are encouraged to use it in their play acting and their drama classes and so on. And together as a leadership team, we come up with the word that we think we need for the year. So we've had attitude one year where we're thinking, you know, our attitudes need to change. Robust, because we thought, you know, we need to have our processes be robust. This year, our keyword is international mindedness. How are we internationally minded and how can we show we are internationally minded? And how do you uh, define that? What does that mean? Oh, gosh, international mindedness. That, that is such a broad term, but it is a term used to describe someone who can be comfortable wherever in the world because they value the norms of other cultures, and they are empathetic towards others. They use language that is accepting and not just tolerating, but accepting of others, and they embrace others as well. So with that, in our international school environment, meant that we talked differently. We listened differently. Some of the examples that we give in class to would be different. This year, we've decided that our key word will be social responsibility. Mm. What are you doing? So what about you and what will you leave behind? What's your legacy? So social responsibility, and we tie it all back to our six attributes. The school has got six attributes we expect of kids, and those six attributes are tied to houses. Each child belongs to a house. Each house has an, one attribute, a house personality, 
end that key word. Let's move from Ghana and what you're creating in Ghana and this model of education that you talk about. Really, you know, it's an educational ecosystem. You've been elected to be a director on the board of the Association of International Schools in Africa, ASA. And that is really literally about international schools all across the continent. There's 81 schools, I think, Mm -hmm. that are part of this. Talk about what you want to see that become Mm. and why it matters Mm-hmm. why it's so important. Understanding some of the history. Now, when you read the name itself, Association of International Schools in Africa, and for me, I latched onto the Africa bit. There are lots of organizations for international schools. GIS belongs to lots of organizations. We are credited by two very rigorous bodies. Mm-hmm. So international schooling, it's evaluation, it's accreditation, no biggie. But for me, the fact that this was happening in Africa was a huge deal. While it is focused on international schools on the continent, though, my desire is to see the organization move towards supporting all schools in Africa in whatever form that support takes. The founding of the organization was primarily for American schools. And so the American Uh State Department wanted to support families that they send overseas to work in their embassies. So they set up schools, much like Lincoln International School in Accra here. So most of those that started were all American. There are many American schools in that mix. And so the language of the organization is about supporting those schools. In the last 20 years, it has opened up to include schools that are not American-based, like GIS, and other types of schools as well. And so because we see the educational landscape changing, the organization is asking itself, who are we? We may have started out as this, but who are we? And for me, my push as a director on the board, a board member, is to say, what's the point of being in Africa if you don't change Africa? What's the point? You know, and so for me, I want to see those schools, those 80 or so schools that belong to ASA, asking themselves that question and saying it's not good enough for us to be privileged to be able to afford all the things that we afford with tuition fees that people could only dream of. What are we doing to affect our communities? And I'm driven by this because our strategic plan that I worked on with the board and stakeholders in the school four years ago, we had five goals. And four of them are the typical goals you might find in almost every other school strategic plan. One for excellent education, your human resource management, your financial management, your facilities. For me, the last one there was the crux of my whole hope for Africa, which is to make impact in our community through service. And I think with ASA, we could do that. ASA has a a big voice. It is well supported. It says it's for Africa. And that is excellent. That gives me hope. That excites me to no end. And admittedly, my background is very different. You know, from the rest of the board members, I'm born and bred African. You know, <laughs> so, yeah, I eat play. my fufu, I eat my banku, <laughs> you know, and that's not to say others don't do the same, but there's certainly something different. And how might our education be different if we were to adopt the model that you are creating in your school and that mm-hmm. you want to see across AISA in Africa? I think that what we would see is starting from uh, better engaged classrooms more excited learners, students who are not afraid to pursue careers that they are comfortable with and will do much better at. 
And then an overall raising of the standards within the economy when people are doing what they're good at and not needing to take bribes, for example, because you're already good at it. Do you see what I mean? So I think that that's what I see, that if this model can be supported and adopted, especially by public school systems, that it will be more or less like a wave, a sort of movement. When I was in in Nairobi for the conference, we were asked to bring an artifact. And this artifact was supposed to be something that shares with everybody what your vision for ASA is. And as I was sitting there and just praying, God, don't let them call me first, I realized I was wearing African print. And I always do this every time I leave Ghana. I make sure when I'm going to be speaking anywhere, representing Africa in any way, shape or form, I always wear African print or I try to. And so when I got to my turn and the the moderator, the facilitator said, what did you bring, Mary? I said, I brought what I'm wearing. And everyone went, oh, and I said, yeah, this is what I want Asa to be. We need to be wearing our passion so strongly that it just shows when you take it off, you're not the same. I couldn't have come for that meeting without a shirt on. But having that shirt on just even cements who I am. There's no denying I'm African, but putting the shirt on says, hey, look at me. This is what I value. And our African fabric has just got so many textures and right. colors and so on. And stories. And stories. Oh, my gosh. So that's so much more than. And that shows the complexity of the continent. Right. You know, one thing that works in Ghana may not necessarily work in Rwanda, right. but at least the model can be tweaked you know, to fit the context in, in Rwanda. And for me, African fabric does that and more. So what do you say to people who say, OK, but you're the principal of Ghana International School. That's the elite. Those are the privileged. How can that model work for a school in Ghana that is out in the village, out in the rural area where people don't have anything like the resources? Because people associate a good education with a moneyed education, how do you respond? This is where we have to unlearn that. We have to unlearn that it has to do with money. It doesn't have to do with money. Money does help the process along and it can make it go faster. But what you need is a dedicated teacher, a passionate, dedicated teacher in the classroom. You could put me under a tree and I will teach amazingly well to kids. It's not about the building. It's not about the fact that they don't have chairs to sit on or they don't have a laptop computer and they're not connected to the Internet. It's not about that. All of that does add, though, and this is why for those of us in a privileged situation, my push is for us to realize that with that privilege comes great responsibility. And so take that and use that to help the rest around you. And it's Mm -hmm. also important, the idea of nothing for Africa without Africans. Mm -hmm. Nothing for the visionary future of education in Africa without the visionary leadership of an African. And the idea of imposed change or imposed leadership has to be relegated to a past that we're looking to shift. So why do you lead in education? Why do you love education? Why does it matter to you? It's a force for change. I think it's a force for change. I can't see anyone who did not love learning of some sort and who has been of impact. We can't get anywhere without making that the number one important ingredient. When we think about visionary education in Ghana and across Africa, we are a continent whose population is youth. Mm -hmm. The the Mm -hmm. youth of the continent is the way in which we're described demographically as a continent. What excites you about what a 
reimagining of education in Africa could create, given the potential of that youth and the vision that you're trying to create Mm -hmm. on this soil? What excites me about the youth is that they're fearless. Totally, totally fearless. I think that access to the internet, access to all forms of media has made them so globally aware. And so it's a bit like we're playing catch up to them. You know, they're, they're so ready for this new way of thinking, a new way of learning. We just have to catch up to them. And I'm so excited when I hear children speak in a way that I never dreamed I could. What does a visionary education mean for Africa? What does your vision of education mean and how does it transform Ghana and Africa? Freedom. Freedom. Just one word. The freedom to be. And I think that if we can vision an education that allows us to be who we are, acknowledges and values who we are, this is the way that we do our hair. Therefore, if a child twists her hair to class, there's nothing wrong with it. This is the way we talk and we may talk in different ways. And that's okay. A vision for education on the continent for me is one of freedom. Because when you are free, you create. That's your hour, reimagining education on our series celebrating and marking Africa Day and the founding of what was the OAU and became the African Union, the AU. Thank you to Dr. Mary Eshin. Thank you Thank so you, much Dr. for Eshin. having me on the show. I want to hear myself. The spin is brought to you by our global team, our sound editor, David McKeever, a.k.a. McKeever Magic, and Loretta Rucker of the AAPRC. The spin, your hour of talk where smart is sexy. I'm your host, Esther Alma. Don't copy, just copy properly. Everybody's so policy, universal equality, responsibility, policy to survive economically. Some people do it comically, future freedom, equality. Invest your money properly. People owe me your policy. Intellectual property, stealing, stolen, commodity, souls, control, and robbery, cold, lack of commodity, clones, copycats, bother me, mine on black, just follow me. Honestly, 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 all these jokers economy. Puppets with no autonomy. Yup, it's food, you can I see you looking, but you better take it easy. Tell your goons that they better take it easy Here comes the rocket launcher Take it easy Take it easy You better take it easy Too much ex-mommy Take it easy Good with the sex you be like Take it easy Mommy take it easy Take it easy You better take it easy You moving bricks but you better take it easy Here's a tip you too flash. I don't tip twice, but your best friend he DT. And that dog sniff in the bag ain't last seat. And I ain't rhyme in a minute, but y'all ain't catch up. And I ain't blood on your shirt, man. That's ketchup. Picture cleft, get the writer to give him help. I'd rather kill myself, become a ghost, and write for myself. Cause I'm the top celebrity, top celebrity, top celebrity in the sea. I flow for the thugs, gypsies, and hippies. Yeah, a ghetto maestro with a nat turn of flow. Malcolm X come out, hit the Ku Club show. I see you looking, but you better take it easy. So you Take it easy. 
This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.